I'm J.D. Fascinetti, and you are listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Welcome. Today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Chris Yedinak to our microphones. Dr. Yedinak is one of the giants of the pituitary world. She is an associate professor in the Department of Neurosurgery in the Northwest Pituitary Center at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Yedinak is a board-certified practitioner providing clinical diagnosis and chronic management to patients with pituitary and adrenal dysfunction. Chris completed undergraduate training in Australia and postgraduate and doctoral studies at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. She also holds a graduate diploma in tertiary education from the University of Southern Queensland in Australia. Her ongoing clinical research is focused on outcome studies in pituitary diseases. She has authored multiple peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and is co-editor of the first advanced practice in endocrinology nursing textbook. She has presented at scientific meetings worldwide. Dr. Yednak is the current president of the Endocrine Nurses Association in the USA and is co-founder and president of the Federation of International Nurses in Endocrinology, also known as FINE, F-I-N-E. We caught up with Dr. Yedinak about a month ago and had a fantastic discussion about endocrine nursing, its challenges, its opportunities, that I think you're going to find fascinating. Here's Dr. Yedinak. Uh, well, hello, Chris. It's terrific to have you here to chat about the world of pituitary endocrinology and your work and your views of the opportunities and challenges that we have with care in this space. Uh, and uh, obviously the work that you do to make life better for patients. So I'm always curious about why uh, you choose the career you choose. So why, why endocrinology? Yeah, good question. Um, it's really interesting because it was a, a, a very circuitous route uh, for me, but, um, and it's great to talk about it. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, my, my pleasure. <laughs> Next time we'll talk in person, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, I think when I look at endocrinology, and, and first of all, I think we've got to talk about en endocrinology as an enchilada, right? It's it's a specialty, but there are still a number of subspecialties within that. Interesting, yeah. And so That's a good way to put it. The enchilada. It's very much an enchilada. Yeah, so yeah. you're peeling back those layers. Pituitary function is certainly one of those. And, you know, I'm attracted to pituitary because it, it's the master gland. It's kind of the thing that controls the rest of those organs. So, But you can have reproductive endocrinology. There's lipid and, and cardiac endocrinology. There's metabolism and bones. There's metabolism and weight. Um, there's thyroidology, there's diabetology. We could kind of go on for a while, right? So, and you know, my focus, as you know, is is pituitary, and that's that's what I love. But when you think about the, those endocrine functions, you have to kind of think about it very holistically because they all kind of interact with each other. 
and mm-hmm. they all impact one another and you know the human function so when I start looking at um, and started getting interested in pituitary function of course it's very much a match for a lot of what we do um, in terms of nursing care because nursing care uh, tries to approach a patient holistically so looking at the patient from uh, where they are in, in life's course because you know we go through many different stages ages in life. yeah um, and then you know socially where they're at you know occupationally where they're at economically where they're at so all of those factors kind of come together so um, all of those things then can impact your endocrine function generically so mm-hmm. it's I think endocrinology pituitary dysfunction is is kind of like a a 3D puzzle building a 3D puzzle it's a very complex thought-provoking kind of uh, dynamic um, type of, of practice and so you've got to try to fit all those pieces together in a way that makes sense and it stays right yes Have, you know, thinking about one that I tried to build with my kids was a, a 3D um, Empire State Building, you know. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so making all that stay together, you've got to have a concept to start off with, and then you've got to know where you're headed and how those pieces fit. So what we're trying to do in dysfunction is figure out why they won't fit and how you can kind of tweak things to make them fit. So that ultimately you end up by making a difference in somebody's life. And I think that's what attracts me ultimately. Yeah, I heard it described many times as more of an art than a science, mainly because a lot of things that we don't know yet. So that's so fascinating. Right. Um, And I think part of the art is putting it together in a way that makes sense. And then that makes sense for that person. We tend Mm -hmm. to be generic, I think, with a lot of the research. But then does that apply to that individual? And yeah. that's the, where the art comes in, is how mm-hmm. do you sort those pieces out so that it makes sense clinically and then treatment-wise you can develop yeah. a plan. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. guidelines are great, but the art really is to fit that to the to the patient's needs and to the Correct. patient's, how, how the, his, his or her body works. Correct. Their body works. You've got two different patients at two different stages of life, you know, two different sets of um, of ages of endocrine function, um, two different um, approaches to to life. They've got different uh, uh, occupations. Yeah, yeah. Um, They, you know, at, at 20, they may be looking at starting a family. Um, at 60, you hope you're not starting a family. <laughs> yes. uh, so <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a, an approach that's really meeting where the patient's at at that time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. So I was in the, the uh, bio that I just, uh, in your presentation, I mentioned that your ongoing clinical uh, interests and research is focused on outcome research. And I, I I wonder, first of all, what are outcome studies uh, in general? And then which ones, does any any of those stick out in the work that you're, you're doing? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? 
I think when you talk about outcomes, it, yeah, it, it's what happens if you do X, right? Okay. So kind of a broad example, um, what would happen if I fed 60 people up, uh, ice cream? Would they all gain weight, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I would, <laughs> but yeah, so would, would everybody I. do the same thing and why not? And so when we apply that then way early on, we did a study, for example, on um, headaches. So patients present often with headaches Mm -hmm. And of course, when you couple that with a pituitary tumor, the natural kind of thought is, well, if I take away the tumor, I take away the headaches. And so we looked at that specifically and said, okay, if you have a headache and we do surgery and this tumor is less than one centimeter or 10 millimeters, does it make a difference? Do people have headaches? Do not, you know, the headaches cured? Um, and in fact, what we found was for those people with Rathke's cleft cysts, mm -hmm. um, for those people with prolactinomas, it did seem to make a difference. Maybe not take them away completely, but it certainly lessened the severity and the frequency of the headaches. Mm -hmm. But if for non-functioning pituitary adenomas, they weren't producing anything in particular, it really didn't make a difference. So perhaps there was better treatments with less risk that we could use um, in preference to, to a surgical procedure. And do you, are you continually doing those studies or is it something oh, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that, that's uh, ongoing. We're looking at what we're doing and what difference does it make? For example, we looked um, at um, IGF-1 levels Mm -hmm. and um, whether um, IGF-1 levels early on um, were predictive of a cure later on for, for acromegaly patients. Yeah. Um, and in fact, is, there's a lot of difference between the assays, and so that becomes a very tricky question. Yeah. Um, we also looked, or recently, um, I just finished a study looking at people with adrenal insufficiency and did they have more uh, risk of, of having COVID mm -hmm. because they were dependent on a glucocorticoid or hydrocortisone? And there was a difference. So um, those kinds of outcomes I think are important so that we can then say to patients, okay, this is uh, uh, what we recommend in terms of avoidance or treatment or, um, Perhaps we've got to watch you more closely because yeah. we know um, one of the studies also we looked at was what are the what do we see in histology or in the pathology from patients that have um, had pituitary surgery, and is there an indicator in in that or that uh, a mix of indicators um, that might tell us whether that patient in fact is at higher risk down the road here for a recurrence. Yeah. And in fact, younger males with sparsely granulated tumors are perhaps more um, susceptible to this recurrence. And so we watch them more closely. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things we're talking about with outcome studies. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the things that I always think about, and mainly because my personal story and, um, you know, the fact that we studied, we started pituitary oral news to see if we could affect this is early diagnosis and the sort yeah. of things 
that are predicting predictive of an early diagnosis. One of the things that when we think about the types of things that really have an impact, could yeah. we push that to people and say, okay, at least I'll suspect it a couple of years before. Absolutely. Uh, so your person, the perspective and that your perspective would be. Uh, the the really more we teach people what to look for, the more understanding we have of what those early signs and symptoms are. Yeah. The, the, we don't have a specific test except the IGF-1. And people in, in primary practice don't often think about doing an IGF-1. No, no, that's so, true. You know, in terms of acromegaly, that would be wonderful if we could have people, um, if we could move that needle really early so that yeah. we didn't have a lot of the issues in terms of bones and joints and, you know, lung problems yeah. and, uh, you know, diabetes and the the whole trajectory of, of issues that are associated yeah. with yeah. acromegaly. It's, it's one of those things that you think, particularly from, from a layperson's perspective, then, he, this is one of those areas where a bunt, to use a, a, a baseball term, becomes a home run. So a, a degree of change of maybe five degrees would make a tremendous amount of impact, maybe shaving on average maybe two or three years of this, you know, six to eight years or whatever the average is, right. would, would have a tremendous uh, impact in quality of life and costs. I mean, you name it. Uh, the Correct. benefits are amazing. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So, so, and I, I think part of what we see now is the internet is is helping that. Yeah, um, it it can also be a hindrance because you know most most people starting medical school or nursing school when they when they read about all the pathologies they start to think oh that's me, yeah. <laughs> I have all those symptoms I can tick all those boxes yeah. right yeah yeah. Um, so it is kind of scary in that respect because it's really easy to to read that into what you're reading on the internet. So, um, but the internet I think is really important because you can potentially do some research, pick up on that, take it to your provider, and then talk through it with the provider. Yeah. Well, and you know what's interesting when I look at it is the ability that we've had as a small little enterprise to amplify. A lot of the of work, a lot of the research, and a lot of the knowledge, which is really, you know, it, it's uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, because I think if you, if you, if people are having conversations, that's the first step about Absolutely. being aware of something. So, anyway. and I, I think you know we talk about rare diseases, but one of one of my philosophies is a rare disease is often because it's a rarely recognized. Recognized, yeah. You were, you know, for me, the experience for me with acromelia was I had no clue what it was until I had it. And then I, I you see it everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> I mean, that's it's exactly pretty amazing. Right. So, uh, that's exactly right. And, and I think that's the same with providers. Once yeah. they have a patient, and I've heard this time and time again, once they've had a patient that's had acromegaly or Cushing's or prolactinoma, then they say, okay, wow. Now I've had two or three referrals that, that have been from yeah. that person because now they're sensitized to it. They know yeah. what they're looking for. I heard that uh, and I've, I've seen it uh, where I think there's uh, several physicians that had said in their writings and told me this is a disease you miss only once. These are diseases right. you miss only once. 
Right. And once you have it, then it's pretty. So it's yeah. it's it's kind of. I think it's one of the things where you we could really make a difference. Uh, it's it's a doable thing, in my opinion. Correct. You know? so, and we do it uh, together. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So let's let's talk a little bit about because you're an educator, and I was interested in talking a little about uh, the uh, state of endocrine nursing education and what is that like do you see a lot of kids interested in going into these these uh uh specialties or sadly i don't think there's enough no um and i i think when you talk about basic education so like in medical education nursing education we do get um endocrinology it's a very you know theoretical um, and until you kind of get out in the world and you start to realize what it is and what it does, then, um, you know, the interest isn't there. So I don't think it happens until later on. Yeah. When when um, physicians move into practice, they move into you know, an internship or a residency. Um, and that's more of a formalized kind of setting. Um, and so they have an interest in something or a subspecialty before they go into it. I think it's a little bit different in terms of nursing in that um, when they get out into practice and then they start to realize, oh, this is kind of an area I'm interested in. Um, then there's no specific formalized program at the moment. Um, now, I say that generically, but mm-hmm. um, if they have an interest uh, depending upon their role and a depending upon their scope of practice and i'll talk about that in a minute but um they they may um not have access to any kind of a formal training so most training even when you talk about residencies is on the job type training so unless Mm -hmm. they've got a uh, found a position that's in an endocrinology practice um, and even at that point um they're dependent upon somebody's um, help to get them uh, the education that they need. Um, so I think it's it's variable, um, but there are two formal programs in the world at the moment that are endocrine master's programs. And one is at Duke, Um, University in North Carolina Mm -hmm. and the other is Oxford Brooks in the UK so both those universities offer a master's uh, program in endocrinology for nurses there's also one in Wales it's a joint um, MD um, nurse uh, practitioner program Mm -hmm. that allows people to certify as um, as endocrine specialists however Right now, nursing does not have a credential for endocrine nursing practice. And so oh, interesting. we would like to rectify that. Um, and that that's something we're working towards. But yeah. I think you've also got to think about the scope of practice issue in nursing because it has become a little bit convoluted in that we um, call a lot of people nurses. Yeah. And their roles different significantly. So yeah. um, there are certified nursing assistants who, who may have, um, uh, and I'm a little out of touch with this and I apologize to anybody. No, no. But it, it may be six weeks or, or two months of training, six months at the most. Um, and then there's licensed practical nurses. Um, and then we have um, 
registered nurses. And in the United States, we have programs that are two years in length. In a lot of places, the entry to, to practice for registered nurses is actually a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Um, and U.S. hasn't really gotten to that point at this point. Beyond that, then, there's master's level nurses. And then beyond that, again, is master's plus a certification in as a nurse practitioner. And that could be in any arena. Yeah. And then, again, beyond that, we have patient, uh, sorry, uh, nurses who are doctorally prepared um, in the, at the DMP level or the, the PhD level. So yeah. DMP being clinical practice and the PhD really focusing more on the research area. So it's that too is a big enchilada. Yeah, um, <laughs> lots of enchiladas in this. Lots of enchiladas in endocrinology. <laughs> it seems like uh, it's um, room for a lot of uh, development and a lot of ideas there to develop to to make it better. So I, I like I was mentioning in your bio, you're the president of the endocrine nurses associations in the in the USA. Yes. And then you're also the founder and president of the Federation of International Nurses in Endocrinology, a group that I met a couple of years ago. Really you, you fun, did. fun group. Yeah, yeah, wonderful group of people. And I was wondering uh, if you could tell me a little about these organizations and the type of work you do there. Absolutely. Yeah. I, the Endocrine Nurses Society really focuses on endocrine nurses in the U.S. However, it's not exclusively, yeah. um, you know, U.S. members. So um, and out of it was um, from the ENS that we actually formed the Federation of International Nurses in Endocrinology. And so that becomes more the um, cohesion of groups around the world. So it's really the collaborative and it's in um, its goals, that although they're very similar for the, the missions for all of these societies are very similar in that um, we want to collaborate. This is more of a, an overall kind of an organization. And mm. the goal, of course, is to connect them all together so that they can talk. And yeah. it's been very rewarding in that sense because um, people from Australia, people from UK, China, Thailand, um, Vietnam, uh, Turkey, we have had members from multiple countries. Um, and we learn about each other's practice. We learn how we can support other people's practices and yeah. how ultimately one of those conversations is, okay, how do we establish standards of practice? Um, and from those standards of practice then um, generate, and the UK has, has actually developed um, a competency program so that we can look at how to move nurses competently through to expert endocrine nurses um, and then give us the basis to be able to develop a certification as uh, an endocrine nurse so that then we can say to uh, to patients to each other to um, the medical community these nurses have specialized training and we support that so at the moment that program is still in in a foundling state um, we're going to continue working towards that not only through the US endocrine nurses society but through this 
Federation of International Nurses um, in Endocrinology. So, mm-hmm. and I've also been working with the UK nurses, the um, um, the European uh, Society of, of Endocrinology, mm-hmm. um, and was on their committee for a while. And I think you know that we're all headed in the same direction. So the time is is rife, I think, for something of that nature. So yeah, looking forward. Yeah, when it sounds like you have the organizations ready to. To, to jump on on these opportunities to 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 make a, so. make an impact yeah right. so uh, just to shift a little bit on the discussion let's talk a little about the opportunities you see uh, I guess maybe we can discuss not only just opportunities but, but barriers to improve you know care in general and uh, like things like access to medication or you know right. the, a lot of discussion about pituitary centers and what makes what pituitary center, what isn't, you know, all these things that are we see continually being discussed. Uh, what what are your thoughts on those sort of things? Sort of needs and challenges. This is probably a, we could we could talk about this for a week. <laughs> I I'm think sure. we could. <laughs> I think we could. I think yeah. this is enough. this is a huge enchilada. This one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Pick, pick one that you know might, might be of interest. Well, you know, access is always an issue. I yeah. think you know how do we get people to the care and the specific care that they need? We don't have enough uh, pituitary centers, for example. So yeah. we know that that's that's a big issue worldwide. And you know, when you talk about identifying, for example, acromegaly, one of the conferences we had in in South Africa. Uh, and a member of WAPO uh, at that time that, that we met. Yeah. He was from Malawi, and there was no endocrinologist in the country of Malawi. Yeah. To me, that's tragic. Yeah. How can we then say, you know, yes, Africa, you know, perhaps generically is a very big country, uh, or a very big continent rather, not country, but yeah. how can we say that that's that, acromegaly for example is more rare in that country than it is someplace else because we don't have the data we don't have the recognition um so how do we promote that access and quite honestly we're in a digital world and we have to be able to use that digital world a lot more efficiently um there's a lot of resistance to um going fully and i understand that Um, we cannot go fully digital um, but through telehealth and virtual health there's a lot more that we can do now Mm -hmm. because people have access from where they are they've they've got access at home they've got access at work i have interviewed people in their car i had somebody that was on the willamette fishing you know so (laughs) yeah you don't have to have a patient then disturb their whole week to travel, um, to, um, to, to stay overnight, to get all the care that needs to be done. They can do it locally, mm-hmm. and then we can do the, the follow-up for, in particular remotely. So mm-hmm. we telemedicine, have to that. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say telemedicine is tremendous. It's sort of accelerated during COVID, but... Uh, uh, I, I've, I've heard of, you know, practices that have actually grown through oh, telemedicine yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. and uh, uh, 
like you're saying, it just opens up the access to it tremendously. So, yeah. I think it's a really, really important access. Um, ENS has been advocating for continuing those services and payment for those services because obviously that's an important part of this puzzle. I, I um, think that's really important, yeah. It's an extremely important part. And so um, that we're continuing to to uh, fight for politically uh, through political action, white papers, et cetera, mm -hmm. um, and participation with other groups that are supporting that effort. So, well, and I uh, think that's that's a joint effort. That's a patient effort. That's a that's a, a provider effort. We it's a society effort. You know, we all need to to jump on that bandwagon because it doesn't matter who you are, where you are. Um, most people have a cell phone now. Well, count us in for. I was going to say no. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. I looked at that data, and it was it was something in the vicinity of eighty percent of the world population now has a cell phone, has digital access either yeah. by a cell phone or by a tablet. Yeah. 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 It, and, it's tremendous. The the right. last you know twenty years, fifteen twenty years. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I was going to say count us in for that effort to help however we can in amplifying all this work that you're doing. Because exactly. I think that, I think that technology, particularly when you get like you're saying, to reach the areas that don't have or they where the real the needs are truly humongous, you know, and there's no access to any of this knowledge or or therapies or medication or whatever. Exactly. So, anyway. Yeah, we've got to be able to what, enhance it. Yeah. What about mental health, Chris? That's something that it's been, you know, up since COVID, you know, in in people's minds in terms of uh, support for pituitary patients and mental health. And so many people are talking about, uh, you know, the multidisciplinary teams and having mm -hmm. mental health as part of those. What are, what are some of your thoughts on that? You know, I think it's essential. Oh, we have if we look at how a patient comes to us they usually have such a circuitous route and we've mapped out the number of services and the number of, of specialties that people have been to literally before they come to us in pituitary and it's tremendous mm -hmm. you know it's not uncommon for people to be eight ten years out and have been to 10 15 different specialties providers just to get the answer yeah um which of course delays the diagnosis so yeah. um we we have to kind of shorten that trajectory um yeah and in terms of mental health and what that does to a person we don't really have a full appreciation for this at this point in time no, no. and so i believe that that needs to be an integral part of all our practices because number one you've fought this battle for years to be heard to be appreciated understood and then all of a sudden you have a diagnosis and the dynamic sometimes in the family also changes yes and so i think that now you're dealing with something different. Now you're dealing with a diagnosis. There's a lot of hope around that diagnosis that things are going to go back to normal, but that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, the puzzle doesn't quite fit back together again. 
And so we can make an approximation of that puzzle, but number one, you're 10 years older. <laughs> and, and number two, there's now this diagnosis that, that really takes on a life of its own. And so then you have to kind of deal with this as this lifetime diagnosis. I know I'm talk I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. No, 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 but you're absolutely I, right. Cause we hear it's not, it's, it's, you hear it from all walks of life, all types of patients. It's, right. it's, it's so ubiquitous, you know, the, and, what you're, what you're talking about. And when we say to somebody, we want you to see a counselor, a psychiatrist or whatever, it's really not to say that, okay, this person is crazy. And now, you know, yeah. it's to say, Hey, there's just so much in this puzzle that you need to kind of work through and, and maybe you don't need to work through as much as the next person. But to have that access in a non-stigmatized way is just part of that treatment plan, mm -hmm. I think, is yeah. really important. Yeah, we um, think so too. I think it's Yeah, it's we haven't critical. gotten there yet, but no. hopefully we will. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the last question now, and probably, I know you're busy, so I'll let you go after this one. That's okay. And again, I want thank, thanks again for taking the time to chat with oh, you're me. You're very it's, welcome. It's, it's I, very, I'm glad we got a chance to do very, this. Very strange, very enjoyable. So a few years ago, I think it was a, a, one of the Acromegaly community conferences, you made a great presentation about patient, how patients should effectively prepare for their for their doctor for their doctor visit or their their visits to their medical team and uh, it was really great and and full of practical advice uh, uh, particularly when we talk about the impact we can make uh, you know in a successful doctor visit uh, where communications is so critical so and I think if you go back all the way to the beginning of that um, first of all is having the patient understand enough about their disease process that they can speak the same language mm -hmm. so and understand how to express what they're going through in a in a way that the provider is going to understand so i think when we, um, a, a lot of us um, nurses are also participants in and advisors to, to different groups like WAPO or the um, acromegaly community, etc. Um, which I think is really important because yeah. you then you start to be able to dialogue and and help to make that transition for people so that um, they can explain what it is that they're going through so that then that provider knows exactly what they're talking about. I think that's number one. So the more education we can get for patients, the more access to digital education, the you know, the more it makes sense to you, the more you're able to do that. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I think then it's really saying, okay, what's most important to me in my life? What are the things that I really wanna come away with and although all of us want to be 100% better or, you know, the way I was 30 years ago, like yeah. that. <laughs> um, reality has to kind of sit in somewhere. So you kind of have to also look at this within that framework. Okay. Given the yeah. fact that I'm now 60 or whatever I am, right. 
um, what is it that I want to be able to do that that perhaps this disorder um, or dysfunction is stopping me from doing mm -hmm. and then be able to articulate that to the provider okay what part of fixing my acromegaly is related to this yeah what part of fixing my cushings is related to this and that becomes a dialogue and i think the important part of that whole process is to make this collaborative this is not the provider's goals his goal or her goal is to get your igf1 in the normal range right okay yeah. you know however how you do that is really important yeah um you know what type of medication is going to be most effective for me we know that not um, all medications are 100 percent effective for everybody and we're not to the point where we have precision medicine yet we're getting there yeah but we're not quite there yet and so what part of that can we work on and negotiate um and so I think also approaching it from that perspective. Yeah. This is so um, interesting because, you know, we think we communicate and the doctor thinks they're communicating with us. And sometimes there's this disconnect, the same language, same culture, but we're not really communicating. So I think the fact that was, was so interesting about what you're saying is the fact that you think about this makes it so much more effective, you know, so that those right. precious moments that you have to ask your questions and or for your physician to communicate what he wants you to or things you should be doing exactly critical. yeah and they are precious minutes because when you think about it in the context of your life oh yeah it's very short time so you know make it effective get you you know your ducks in a row so yeah. that when you're in there you can have a power visit yeah get get the the issues addressed that you want addressed yeah. find the resources that you need beyond that okay yeah because it's not just a one-time thing it's you know it's how what else do i need to look at what else do i need to do what other concomitant diseases or disorders do i need to address well chris i think this has been a fascinating uh discussion I, i'm sure that all of our 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 podcast audience that listens to the pituitary wellness process is going to be uh, fascinating with this, this fascinated with this discussion so i want to thank you very much again for taking the time to to talk to me and i look forward to hopefully seeing you in person this year after two years of not uh, of working from home yes you're very welcome and i am looking forward to that with great gusto yeah, great. <laughs> thanks again Thank you, J.D. Okay, uh -huh. it's nice to be here. You have been listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. And don't forget to tune in to our live broadcast program every Thursday at 3 p.m. live talk to get an opportunity to call in and ask your questions. Stay tuned to pituitarywellnews.org for guests and some of the subjects we will be discussing. Thank you for listening. <laughs>